On April 24th, 2020, at 3.33 p.m., a woman out walking her dog makes a grim discovery in a ditch. In that ditch is the lifeless body of a man. He's barefoot, has a blood-stained shirt tied around his wrist, a gun sling on his body, and his pants pockets have been pulled out. The woman notifies police. Police arrive on the scene and cannot find any form of identification on the man's body. He has no wallet, cell phone, or any such items on him, and none are located around him. It appears the man's body has been dumped there after whatever horrific event had occurred to him. The man in the ditch undergoes an autopsy and something deadly is found in his stomach. While this case was being investigated, some extremely concerning information was discovered on the phone of someone close to this man. So who is this man, how did he die, and who's responsible? Well, come hang out with me while I talk true crime. Welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. While I was looking into a different case, I came across this case. I was surprised I had never heard of it before because when I started looking into it, I found so many news articles on it. And this has, and it's happened quite recently. Along with countless news articles, I was able to come across the affidavit for probable cause in connection to this case, which is not always available. So let's get into it. In 2020, David Fouts was 50 years old. He worked as a senior consultant and technology architect at Salesforce in Indianapolis. David was a member of Roll's Fast Biking Group in Hamilton County. He loved to cycle and he was very good at it. In fact, even accomplished, I read. This love of cycling extended to the people he cared about and he even wanted to buy and put together bicycles for his stepdaughter's children. The reason he wanted to put them together was to ensure that they were safe and road ready. So it seems like David has a big heart. Actually, David also has a soft spot for greyhounds. He had adopted four of them. When he wasn't working, cycling, or caring for his adopted greyhounds, he also really enjoyed woodworking and mechanics. He and his 54-year-old wife, Katrina Fouts, lived near Hamilton County in the neighboring Madison County on South Woodrow Drive in Pendleton, Indiana. It was a 21-minute drive from their house in Pendleton to a nearby town called Noblesville. It was a rural road in Noblesville that on the afternoon of April 24, 2020, a dog walker discovered an unknown deceased man in the ditch. Police had used fingerprint records to identify the John Doe, and it was none other than David Fouts. His cause of death was unknown. There was no apparent injuries, no stab wounds, no bullet wounds, no blunt force trauma, nothing that immediately told police how he had died. He did, however, have traces of duct tape around his wrists and ankles, meaning he was bound at one point. His pockets of his pants had been turned out like someone was looking through them, possibly robbing him. He had no socks or shoes on and a blood-stained shirt wrapped around his wrist. He did have small cuts on his right foot, indicating that he had been dragged. Police immediately believed that David did not die here, that he was dumped here. 
Police have an address for David Fouts and they drive over to his home to break the news to his wife, Katrina. When police break the horrible news to Katrina that her husband has been found dead, she tells police that he had been talking about committing suicide for a while, years even, and not just talking about it, but threatening that he was going to do it. Katrina states that just a week earlier, David had said something that alarmed her. According to Katrina, David said everyone would be better without him. Katrina seemed grief-stricken and also stated she wished she would have done more to help her husband, and she was now feeling guilty that she had ignored the signs. But then Katrina tells police something else, something that points them in another direction. She tells them that a man had been coming to their home multiple times recently, and he didn't seem friendly towards her husband, David. This man was claiming that David had had an affair with a woman he apparently knew, and he was looking for him. When police ask about who David had an affair with, Katrina names a woman. She then describes in great detail what the man looked like who had been looking for her husband. She also says that this man had told her that he meant her no harm, and that she didn't have to fear him, and he even seemed sympathetic to her situation, that she had been caught up in in all of this. She describes this man's height, weight, eye color, hair color, how he spoke. Uh, She assumed he was educated because of how how he spoke. She knew quite a bit of information about this man. She gave a very descript description and it's unknown the relation between the woman David was allegedly having an affair with and this man who was looking for him. Katrina tells police that she never filed a report or notified them of of these odd encounters because David didn't want to bring it to the police's attention. This is for sure going to raise red flags with police. After all, it's clear David's body was dumped, robbed, and that he was previously bound at the wrists and ankles at one point. So suicide wouldn't explain those things. This was looking a lot like murder. Police did have a search warrant and Katrina also allowed them into the home to search for anything that might tell them what happened to David. They found his cell phone in the home despite Katrina saying she didn't know where it was. And the weird thing about this is that when they found it, Katrina then told police that he always kept his phone there and that she had actually seen it there the whole time, all along. Uh, She went from saying, I don't know where his phone is to, oh yeah, it's always there. In fact, I've seen it there this whole time. This whole time it's been there. I knew it was there. So that was very strange. Then she just forgets her and David have a summer home in Hamilton County in Noblesville. The same county, the same town even, his body was discovered in and they had leased it for years. She's like, oh, no, we um, we don't have a house there. Then later on, she's saying that they do have a home there. It's their country house. That's what she calls it. And it turns out they lease it. And she's claiming she forgot about it. Forgot about it, even though she tells police she goes there every day to feed their cats and that they basically live there. How could she forget she has... Uh, I don't know what you, she calls it a country house. I was calling it a summer home. How could she forget she has this second home in the same town her husband was found dead in? Um, And she's also saying she goes there every day to feed her beloved cats. I don't know. Also, that seems like a lot of work 
I mean, why have two homes 20 minutes from each other and live in both? I understand a, a summer house or a, a cabin on a lake, but a country house that's 20 minutes from your all year round home, especially to lease it and not own it. I don't, I don't know. I, this was something I never understood about this case. I don't get it, uh, but it is a thing in, in this case. It was a thing for David and Katrina. And I don't know, thinking about it, maybe it's some kind of lease to own situation. Maybe they were planning on retiring there, selling their other home. I don't know. Maybe it was an investment property type of thing. It doesn't really matter why they had it. But what does concern police is why she suddenly forgot about it. This is starting to look really weird to police now. Why lie about the second home? Why lie about David's cell phone? And maybe what else? What else is she lying about? That's probably what police are thinking at this point. Katrina is interviewed again by police on April 26, which is the day after they informed her of her husband's death. During this interview, Katrina talks about the weeks leading up to David's death. She, she tells them that she was concerned David may take her medication to try to kill himself. And she was so concerned that she had even started counting her medication to make sure none of it was missing. And she tells police that she was doing research on her phone uh, so she would know how much missing medication would be enough to concern her had David stolen it. And this proved to be true as police discovered searches on her phone on April 10th between 1.07 p.m. and 2.20 p.m., the search history revealed that Katrina looked up, can you overdose on Lexapro? There was another search about another kind of medication. And I also read a search that read, who can help me? I'm afraid my husband is at risk for suicide by overdosing on medication. So these are very specific searches very specific searches. There is a lot more discovered on her phone, her chamber of secrets, if you will, but I'm going to talk more about that later. During this interview, Katrina also tells police that April 18th and April 19th, nothing stuck out as odd to her regarding David's behavior. In fact, she says it was a beautiful weekend and they even had a family dinner with her daughter and their granddaughter, David herself. They were all there. And Katrina's daughter was asked about this and she confirmed it. David seemed to be in good spirits. Katrina goes on to say that on April 21st, she planned to meet with her father, Glenn Gentry. Glenn, he has a caregiver named Terry Hopkins, who is a retired police officer um, Terry Hopkins was a police officer for 33 years, actually, before he retired. And now he's a caregiver to Katrina's father, Glenn. Terry had become a close family friend, and he was also involved in these plans as, you know, he is Glenn's caretaker. So he was also involved in meeting up with Katrina with her father. Katrina says these plans changed when her father he really didn't want to leave his home, but Terry Hopkins was still willing to go ahead with the plan and meet up with Katrina and leave Glenn alone for a couple hours. He should be all right at home by himself is, is I guess what he was thinking. And you're never going to guess where they were going to meet up at. 
That's right, the country home, the home Katrina forgot she had in Noblesville. Apparently, they were meeting there because Terry and David, they did not get along and Katrina was worried about a fight happening between them. She said they had fought in the past for this exact same reason. So this, I was like, what? Wait. And so I guess David found out that Katrina and Terry were meeting at this country home. And according to Katrina, David was pretty pissed off about this. Uh, I wonder what about this bothered David? I mean, that wasn't in the affidavit. I don't know why this bothered David. Just that David got mad at Terry for meeting his wife at their country home. So was David suspecting an affair? Did he think there was an affair going on here? That was never stated in anything that I read but I just I don't I'm not sure why he would be mad about this on the evening of the 21st between 6 p.m and 7 p.m Katrina went to meet Terry Hopkins so that they could both go to this country home the, the country house in Noblesville Terry had driven from Richmond to Pendleton where Katrina and David's main house was he didn't go to the house though apparently they met at the grocery store and then from there they went to the the country home the country house before driving to pendleton terry did a little shopping around 4 p.m that day when police look into what he purchased it gets kind of weird terry hopkins had previously purchased that day microfiber cleaning cloths duct tape a six inch diagonal cutter a box cutter and cleaning gloves which I assume are latex gloves plastic gloves cleaning gloves this shopping list it's a bit weird it's a bit weird with the duct tape the gloves and the cleaning cloths I mean that could be seen as sinister but in total it could appear to be a trip to the hardware store for some random things for the garage it's not really screaming anything sinister but it's also not really screaming innocence Katrina told police that her and Terry hung out at the country house and then they both fell asleep she sent David a text message at 2 47 a.m this message reads hey honey my apologies I fell asleep I think Pops is going to be okay to drive. He wants to make it back because he doesn't want to leave Dad alone all night. I'll see you within the hour. Four, seven, three, six. So a few things here. Pops was what Katrina called Terry. So this would seem to indicate David knew that they were hanging out at the country house together or at least made to seem like he knew. If I mean, if he got mad about this in the past and he knew it was happening currently, what's changed here that he's no longer mad about this? Also, Katrina had texted David previous to this text explaining that Terry's blood sugar was not good uh, that, that evening and that she didn't want him to drive until it resumed to a normal level, which is why she's saying now that she thinks he's okay to drive. And finally, the numbers in this text message, 4736, apparently they mean love forever and always. 
4736. It's like the it, it is the letters of each word. So like love is four letters, forever is seven letters, you know. Katrina tells police that she woke up and headed back to the Pendleton house between 3 and 3:30 a.m. She did say that throughout that evening she did text her husband, uh, but her texts, they went unanswered. She wasn't getting any texts back from David. When she got home, she didn't see David, but she didn't look for him either. I guess they were no longer sharing a bed at this time and she slept on the couch. It wasn't until the morning when she woke up around 7.30 a.m. on the 22nd, she realized he wasn't there. She did tell police that when she got home from the country house that morning around 3.30 a.m., the garage door was open and the light was on, but this didn't seem to cause her concern. Even with David's sudden and unexplained disappearance, Katrina didn't seem worried. She said she thought maybe he was going to get mental health help, which allegedly David had discussed with Katrina earlier and even asked if she could arrange his time off work. David worked from his home office out of the Pendleton home and around 2.21 p.m. that day, David's boss starts looking for him. David hadn't logged in to work from his home office, from his home office computer, and his boss called David's cell phone, but the call went unanswered. He never heard from David. Around this same time, Katrina then contacts David's boss and actually arranged for David to have time off work. So David's boss is like, hey, do you know where David is? I noticed he hasn't been at work today. He hasn't logged in. Do you know where he is? It's 2.21 p.m. And she's like, oh yeah, actually he's going to need some time off work. And I don't know what his boss said. His boss probably said, okay, I don't know. Katrina then tells police that on April 23rd, her and Terry put together a hydraulic lift and stored it at the country house. This lift was newly purchased by Terry for Katrina. Why would one need that? Why do you, why, why does she need a hydraulic lift? I mean, simple answer is for lifting something heavy, obviously, but why? Just why? There was more than just a lift purchased by Terry, but I'm going to get into that later. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. During this evening, Katrina says Terry had went to the Pendleton home. Went to the Pendleton home, the one Katrina didn't want him going to the night before in fear of running into David. But Katrina said on this evening, she didn't care. Um, what's changed, I wonder? Terry went there to retrieve his glucose monitor, and this made me wonder how it got into the Pendleton home in the first place. Because he didn't go there the night before. He was at the country house. In this police interview, Katrina makes sure to bring up her suspicions that David was killed by two individuals. This is strange because she was making it sound like David wanted to take his own life when police first talked to her. But then she also threw in this mystery man. And now she's saying, mm, I think two people killed him. She said that this unidentified man who was associated with the woman David had an affair with came around their home looking for David and said that David was going to die because David had threatened his life. Okay. 
if Katrina was trying to point police in the direction of the woman who David had that affair with and this mystery man associated with that woman, it didn't work. Those roads led to nowhere. Police ruled out that woman and any man she knew matching that description. There was no leads here. Katrina denied any involvement in the death of her husband, but suggests two people did kill David and she didn't know who it was. April 23rd, Katrina is hanging out with Terry, putting together a hydraulic lift for lifting heavy things, I guess. And April 24th, the next day, her husband is found dumped in a nearby ditch dead. Police interviewed Katrina's daughter twice, and she confirms they did have dinner with them on the 18th and that David seemed fine, nothing out of the ordinary. Katrina's daughter also told police that she had spoken to her mother after David went missing, but before his body was found. And her mother never even mentioned him, let alone the fact she had no idea where he was or that he had disappeared. And Katrina never filed a missing persons report either. Katrina's daughter found this to seem odd now that she knows the situation. And another thing that didn't sit right with her was that Terry Hopkins would leave Glenn Gentry, her grandfather, who he was the caretaker for, to spend the night with Katrina. But as we heard earlier, that wasn't planned. He, he, they weren't planning on spending the night together, but it happened because of his uh, blood sugar becoming unbalanced. Now I'm going to talk about David's autopsy. The autopsy occurred on April 25th, which was one day after his body was found. And according to the court affidavit, it was clear that he was moved after death as proven by lividity marks. David was killed elsewhere, and however his position was after death, his blood pooled at the lowest point in his body and created the lividity marks. Lividity begins a half hour to four hours into death and is most pronounced after 12 hours. These marks on David did not line up with the position David's body was discovered in, in the ditch. This means it's very clear that he was dumped there after death. For some reason, I found this very interesting and I started reading all about lividity and it can really tell the forensic pathologist a lot. This can tell a story. Say if David was on his back after his heart stopped pumping, uh, you know, he when he died, the blood would cease to circulate in his body and it would pool in the parts of his body that are against the ground. So say he was placed in the ditch on his side after being dead on his back for anywhere between 30 minutes and a half hour. The lividity marks, they wouldn't line up with how the body was placed in the ditch if he was placed on his side, but he died on his back. And I'm not sure where the lividity marks were on David or the position he was found in, but in this case, they were saying two different things. That was for sure. On David's right foot, he had three abrasion marks, and investigators believe that this is caused by being dragged, which is also supporting evidence of David being moved after death. During an autopsy, the contents in an individual's stomach will be investigated. And in this case, there was something very sinister found. David's stomach contents revealed chunks of mushrooms. 
14 to be exact. These mushrooms were sent away for further testing and it was suspected they were incredibly poisonous. It wasn't making sense that David's toxicology report was coming back with nothing on it to point police in the direction of poisoning when these mushrooms are highly toxic to human beings. Enter Dr. M. Catherine Amy, a mushroom expert. Not just a mushroom expert, but a professor of mycology from the Purdue University Department of Botany and Plant Pathology a.k.a. the coolest woman in the world. The mushroom chunks were sent to her for DNA analysis. And guess what? Yep, 100% match for a lethal mushroom called Leucocybe canada. And I think I'm pronouncing that right. I gave it my best shot. Common name, white dome cap mushrooms. And they contain a very deadly toxin. And... It will wreak havoc on the human body within 5 to 30 minutes after intake. It works very quickly. The toxin will slow heart rate, cause respiratory distress, coma, and death if not treated. The reason this toxin wasn't showing up in David's toxicology report is because it deteriorates within 8 hours. So by the time David was found and underwent that tox screening, the toxin was gone. The amount of mushrooms found in David's stomach would suggest he was given a lethal dose. Whoever had something to do with this sure must have done their research. Now's a good time to talk about what investigators found on Katrina's cell phone. When police looked through Katrina's phone, they found a screenshot. And this screenshot was about a poisonous mushroom webpage. Reading, quote, the mushroom is the most deadliest plant known to mankind, unquote. Wow, what a, what a weird coincidence, isn't it? Investigators want to look into both Katrina and Terry's cell phone locations, specifically from April 22nd to the 23rd. This would be a good way to see if Katrina has told police the truth about being at the country house with Terry. Things get a bit weird here as both her and Terry's cell phones, um, location information or GPS get turned off. Almost like they didn't want their movements to be recorded. But there was still a lot of information recorded. There, the, the location information and the GPS, they weren't turned off the whole time. So police can extract some information from them. April 22nd at 1.39 a.m., Terry's phone location is showing he was at the country house, like Katrina said. But then between 1.40 a.m. and 2.59 a.m., Terry's phone location information was manually turned off and was not recording or documenting any of his locations. Had Terry gone anywhere with his phone between these times, it couldn't be proven. It couldn't be proven this way. His phone did not record his location between those times. Police find a neighbor's surveillance camera 500 feet from the country house that shows two vehicles driving down the street at 2.15 and 2.17 a.m. when Terry's location information was turned off. I couldn't find if these vehicles were determined to be Katrina's and Terry's, but 
The fact it was in the affidavit makes me think police may suspect it was. Katrina's phone says she was at the country house, or at least her phone was. And at 2.47 a.m., she sent David that text about coming home soon. 2.59 a.m., Terry's information location is turned back on, and his phone shows that he's at the country house. Why was his location information off for an hour and a half? One minute later, Terry calls Katrina and they talk for 24 seconds. Then one minute after that, Terry calls Katrina again and they talk for 17 seconds. At 3.17 a.m., Katrina's phone was back in the Pendleton location. And this does match her story. The Pendleton home is her and David's other homes. It's not the country house. It's, it's their other home. It's the Pendleton home. And this is around the time she told police she got home and that the garage door was open and the light was on and she went to sleep on the couch. But at 3.17 a.m., Katrina's GPS on her phone is shut off and it isn't turned back on until 8.05 a.m. At 3.18 a.m., Katrina calls Terry and they talk for seven seconds. At this time, Terry's phone is now pinging off Pendleton Towers. So this is meaning that he's left the country house and he's in the same area that Katrina and David's other house is, where Katrina is at this time. Okay, but Terry lives in Richmond. So what's going on with that? I will say I did look at the location of where Richmond is, where Pendleton is, where the country house is. And it is possible that he had to drive through Pendleton to get to Richmond. So maybe he was driving through and they were communicating at that time and his phone was pinging off the Pendleton Tower. 3.19 a.m., Terry calls Katrina and they have a conversation that lasts even longer. They have a conversation that lasts 190 seconds. Why are they calling each other so much? And why are they having these short bursts of conversations? Kind of weird. 4.39 a.m., Terry texts Katrina saying he made it home safe. Katrina's GPS was still off at this point, but at 8.06 a.m., it's turned back on and she texts Terry back saying she's glad that he made it home okay and that she's sorry he didn't feel well the previous night. And she also says, you're the best. Love your kid from another mother. At 8.14 a.m., Katrina's phone location is saying she's back at the country house. The one she told police a couple days later, she forgot she had. The evening of the 22nd, they start texting again. At 5.28 p.m., Terry texts Katrina that he had lost his glucose meter. And she texts back from the Pendleton home that she found it at 6.08 p.m. So how did his glucose meter get to be in the Pendleton home if they stayed at the country house all night? How did that get there? The two also have a conversation about meeting the next day, which is the 23rd. So they're talking about meeting up on the 23rd. These phone records are showing some very odd activity. The next day on the 23rd, Terry and Katrina are texting again between morning and afternoon. Katrina is asking if he is still coming around to get his glucose monitor. Um, she hasn't said anything about not seeing David or anything about her husband's sudden lack of presence in in text anyways there was no text message sent like I can't find David I wonder where David is I'm worried about David no there was um nothing through text that I saw anyways maybe she said something in one of those phone calls I don't know those phone calls are not recorded 
They do have a phone call around 11.30 a.m. that lasts under two minutes. And then after that phone call, Terry sends a text message saying, yes, I'm being very careful with my intake. I don't know why, but that strikes me as code for something. And then Katrina's text also seems weird to me, but it could just be how I'm reading it. Um, At 11.44 a.m., she texts Terry and is like, yeah, let's meet tonight after I take a nap. A nap, huh? I don't know. I just feel like this is also code for something. I feel like this texting conversation is, I feel like they're saying something without saying it. Like they know the meaning of what these words mean and it's saying something that is not what we're seeing. That's just my opinion. I don't know. I don't know. It's after that weird text message that Terry goes back to the same store he bought the cleaning cloths, the duct tape, and those cleaning gloves at. And this time he purchases a lot more. At 12.10 p.m. he purchases two blue tarps and a lifting sling, which can lift up to 6,400 pounds. What, I mean, is that an automotive thing? Is that for like taking an engine out of a car? I'm not sure, but he buys one. Okay, now, his purchases before made me think, okay, that's a little bit strange, but this. This is, uh, this is looking a lot like something's up. The man's a retired cop. I mean, come, what are you doing? Just naked face buying this shit on record, on camera. I don't know if he used a card, but they definitely tracked this to him. He did break up his odd purchases by using different stores, though, because later that same afternoon, at a different store around 2.20 p.m., he buys AA batteries, which are going to come back up later, a 500-pound hydraulic lift cart, which I, I think that means it can lift 500 pounds, not that it weighs 500 pounds. And he also buys 100 white zip ties, At 2.49 p.m., Katrina texts him to let him know she's taking a nap and will be up by 6.45 p.m. so that they can meet up. Despite this text, she stays in communication with him the entire afternoon. So I don't know if she's sleep texting or if she just didn't take her nap, but she even calls him multiple times. And the longest call was at 5.25. She calls him and they talk for almost 20 minutes. These two seem to be communicating like crazy. They are in contact all the time. Also, their location pings on their phones get really bizarre this evening until like 4 a.m. the next morning, which is the 24th, until 4 a.m. on the 24th. So 6.56 p.m. that evening of the 23rd, Terry's phone location was in Pendleton. This could be when he had picked up his glucose monitor like Katrina told police. 7.21 p.m., he was then at the country house. This could be the time when Katrina said they were putting that hydraulic lift together. Then at 2.04 a.m. on the 24th, he's back in Pendleton, which could, again, just be him going from the country house to Richmond, passing through Pendleton, because he arrives in Richmond by 3.46 a.m., and he texts Katrina that he made it home safe. Katrina's phone location is where things get weird. It seems like she's just out all night 
until morning. Her phone says she's been in Pendleton from 10.59 a.m. on the 23rd until 2.33 a.m. on the 24th. But then she goes out toward a town like a half hour away called Newcastle. And she arrives back in Pendleton at 2.59 a.m. It seems like Terry left the area around 2 a.m.-ish. And then when he leaves, Katrina also leaves to go towards Newcastle at 2.30 in the morning. What's that about? What is that about? This brings us to the 24th. By 6.45 a.m., Terry is texting Katrina about having a chat. I'm not sure if and when these two sleep or if ever because uh, she was just up until 3 a.m. driving around and did he not just get home at like 4 a.m.? She responds to this text at 8.30 a.m. thanking Terry for helping her with her car last night. Okay, maybe that's what the lifts were for. Maybe that's what the hydraulic lift was for. That lifting sling, maybe it was for automotive purposes. And this text could be proof that they were using that hydraulic lift for automotive purposes and not body dumping purposes. Or maybe it's made to seem that way. Katrina spends the day of the 24th going back and forth from the country house to the Pendleton house like it's her job or something. She goes there at 9.30 a.m. until 11.35 a.m. and then back again at 6.45 p.m. This could be her feeding the cats breakfast and dinner, I guess, because she did say she goes there all the time to feed her cats. And also, David did have four greyhounds. I don't think you can have greyhounds near cats. So my guess is they keep the greyhounds at the Pendleton house. They keep the cats at the country house. At 11.36 a.m. on this day, Terry sends Katrina a text message saying how he fell in the garage and hurt his chest really bad and he has bruises all over him now. Okay, Terry, I'm sure you did. I'm sure that's what happened. David's body was discovered at 3.33 p.m. on Overdorf Road on the 24th, just a 14-minute drive west of the country house. After midnight, so technically the next day, being the 25th, at 12.54 a.m. So it's, you know, almost an hour into the 25th, and the police are knocking at Katrina's door in the middle of the night. And this is when police inform her at her Pendleton home that her husband has been found dead. Two hours later, she sends Terry a text message informing him that police have notified her of her husband's death. Her text read this, quote, Pops, Hamilton County Police were here. They just informed me that they found David's body and he's deceased. I can't breathe right now. I can't believe this is even real and I'm supposed to call the detective back in the morning around 10 a.m. I am beyond devastated. Don't say anything to dad. I'm going to have to tell him myself. I love you, unquote. At 3.04 a.m., Terry sends Katrina a text message saying, my prayers are with you. I talked about what police found on Katrina's cell phone, but it's also a lot about what police didn't find on Katrina's cell phone, and this raises suspicion. She never once tried to call David to find out where he had disappeared to, 
not on the 22nd, not on the 23rd, and not on the 24th. And then police were at her house the 25th to tell her that he was found dead. She never texted or talked to her daughter about her husband's disappearance during this time either. Along with the search warrant for Katrina's residence, police had also obtained warrants for Terry Hopkins' residence in Richmond. The vehicle he drove was particularly of interest to investigators. The vehicle Terry drove may have been seen on surveillance footage April 23rd at 7.50 p.m. on the same street as the country house, driving west, which is towards the road David's body was found on. In fact, a vehicle had been caught on surveillance cameras driving up and down Overdorf Road four times, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, on April 24th between 12.53 a.m. and 1.30 a.m., which is about 14 hours before David's body was discovered by the dog walker in that ditch, on that road. One could assume this car scene between 12.53 a.m. and 1.30 a.m. driving back and forth may have been looking for a spot to, I don't know, dump a body or did dump a body. Whichever vehicle was used, there's a good chance police may find something of interest in it. Police search Terry's vehicle and they find a two-way radio powered by AA batteries. Terry had just purchased AA batteries on April 23rd along with that hydraulic lift and blue tarps. Another two-way radio is found in Katrina's car, and police discovered the two two-way radios were set to the same channel. This would indicate Katrina and Terry were using these to communicate instead of cell phones. Unlike cell phones, you can't pull information from them. There's no information location sharing on these two-way walkies. Police also located a black mat that belongs to the hydraulic lift and a, that box cutter in Terry's vehicle. This box cutter had fibers on it and the lab would later state were similar visually and chemically to the pink shirt found tied around David's wrist when his body was discovered. The Indiana State Police Lab was also able to test DNA on that pink shirt, and it came back as Terry Hopkins. This is what I read in the affidavit, which came from the lab report. Quote, each statistical analysis provides very strong support for the inclusion of Terry W. Hopkins, unquote. The box cutter found in Terry's vehicle is connected to that pink shirt and the pink shirt and the box cutter are connected to Terry Hopkins so this is not looking good for Terry or Katrina at this moment the hydraulic lift was also analyzed and Terry's blood was discovered on that as well I really thought I was going to read that David Fouts blood was also found on it but no it was just Terry's blood as for that gunsling that was found on David Fouts' body when he was discovered, that was also tested, and the DNA on that revealed that it only belonged to David Fouts. There was also hair found on it, but it was said to not come from a human. It was not human hair, and if I had to guess, and this is me just guessing, I would say maybe it was cat hair, because there are cats in that 
country house. That's where Katrina keeps her cats. And I started thinking about this sling and it's never fully explained, but I had a theory because it seems like quite a random thing for him to have on his body. I mean, he had no shoes on. There was a shirt tied around his wrist and then he had this sling partially on his body. And I started thinking about this sling. I'm like, why would that be there? There's no reason for that to be there unless there was a reason for it to be there. And maybe that was used as a way to hoist his body up using a lifting sling or a hydraulic lift. So that's just my theory that was never explained in this affidavit. That was just something I was thinking about because that sling, it's just so out of place. It just didn't make sense. But if you think of it like that, then it makes perfect sense. As well as police had warrants to search Terry Hopkins' home, they also had a warrant to search his physical body. When police looked over Terry's body, they discovered the backs of his hands were all scratched up. And it's believed that some of these scratches are consistent with fingernail scratches. What I didn't find was that David had Terry's DNA under his fingernails. So if Terry was scratched by David, I there was no connection there. I did not see that Terry's DNA was found under David's fingernails. Terry also had a large open wound on top of his right forearm. Other injuries to his body included bruising on his chest, upper torso, and also upper right arm. He also had a small scratch on his nose. I'm starting to wonder, all these scratches, all these little scratches everywhere, I'm starting to wonder if he had been walking through a bushy area with a lot of scratchy bushes and and plants in it maybe he was wearing a long sleeve shirt so his nose got scratched his hands got scratched Uh, it's just that's what I'm thinking was he walking through a bushy area because that that's what this these scratches could be accounted for by that perhaps Terry did send Katrina that text message about falling in the garage. Remember that? He sent that message. He was like, oh, I fell. I've got a lot of bruising. It's all over my chest. So was that true or was that to cover his tracks when police came looking around? Did he get those injuries from doing something sinister or did he actually have a fall in the garage? April 21st, which was the same day Terry Hopkins had purchased the duct tape cleaning cloths the box cutter, and the cleaning gloves. That was the same day police could last verify David Fouts was alive. That day, David had been working and a colleague said that she had spoken with him and been communicating with him from that morning, the morning of the 21st, until around 7 p.m. that evening. Hours before this is when Terry bought those items. This would indicate police believe David Fouts may have been killed the night of the 21st, three days prior to his body being discovered. And according to Katrina and Terry's cell phone records, they had been in contact and around each other between the 21st and the 23rd, going back and forth between the Pendleton home and the country house and keeping very weird hours. David's death was ruled as a homicide by unspecified means. The toxic mushrooms were, of course, highly suspected to have played a large role in this. The affidavit read that those mushrooms found in David Fout's stomach contents are toxic and basis for the cause of death. 
One month after David's death on May 26, Katrina Fouts calls police. The investigator on the case and the one who wrote this affidavit I spent hours scouring is Detective G. Lockhart. During this phone call, Detective Lockhart tells Katrina, surely you must know by now that we know you killed your husband. He says this to Katrina and Katrina responds, I know. Detective Lockhart then says, I just don't know why it happened. And again, Katrina responds, I know. Katrina had brought up early in the investigation that David was abusive towards her, both mentally and physically. She also pointed out that he had been in rehab two months before his his death, and he was in rehab for alcohol. Police did find a record that Katrina had actually been charged with false informing one month before David's death. This charge came from Katrina filing a report about David Fouts for invasion of privacy. I don't know what's going on with all that. That's all the information I got on that. And I would really like to have more information on this matter because it seems like something's going on. It seems like this might be relevant. This raises the question of, was Katrina a battered wife who was pushed to murder after trying to get help from police and then ended up with a charge on herself? We all know women in domestic abusive relationships rarely get the support they need from law enforcement when they need it. However, this was the only time domestic abuse was brought up anywhere I saw. I looked for the actual trial records to see if Katrina's defense team was going to use this as a defense, but every court link I followed for this case was gone. It had been removed, I'm guessing. None of it, I couldn't, I tried to follow so many links of Katrina Fouts versus the state of Indiana and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't come up with anything. I did find the affidavit, but as for like trial court records, I couldn't find anything. Um, so I don't know what her defense argued. I'm not sure if they argued this uh, battered uh, wife defense. It didn't seem like Katrina was putting up much of a fight to investigators because she told Detective Lockhart that she just needed time to tie up loose ends before she came to police and did what she needed to do, presumably meaning confess. She had actually thanked the detective for allowing her time to find her father a new caregiver and move him closer to family, also to get her cats and dogs to good homes and sell her house. This does not sound like a cold-blooded killer to me. The cold-blooded killer isn't going to thank a detective for allowing them any leeway, any time to do these things for other people that are helping them, to help her father find a new caregiver, to move him closer to family so he gets the care he needs, to rehome her cats, to rehome those dogs. This just is not... To me, it does not sound like a cold-blooded killer at all. I will actually read you paragraph 67 from the affidavit relating to this case now. Quote, Katrina Fouts has called me numerous times since I first made contact with her on April 25th, 2020. During several of our conversations, Katrina Fouts expressed her gratitude that investigators were allowing her time to tie up loose ends and to get her ducks in a row so she did not have those things hanging over her head. Among the loose ends Katrina Fouts discussed were getting the house sold, getting home health care for her father,
father and getting her father moved closer to family so he would be safe and cared for, getting the cats moved to the care of others, and getting the greyhounds moved to new forever homes. Katrina Fouts also told me several times that she was not going anywhere and that when the time came, she would turn herself in. In a phone call with me on June 10th, 2020, Katrina Fouts promised meeting with me alone to talk off the record. She stated, I can't go in there and do what I gotta do until I get everything taken care of, and you know that, unquote. The fact she is so willing to accept her fate is chilling. It makes me think that in her mind, She's weighed up the possibility of being charged with murder and spending the rest of her life in prison or living with her husband. And the former was more appealing to her. This makes me think she was desperate to be rid of David for some reason and was more than willing to accept getting caught and her punishment. I feel like there may be more to this case that we don't know about and maybe never will, but I just, I feel like there's something else going on here. By September of 2020, Katrina was charged with murder, conspiracy to commit murder, false informing, and failure to report a corpse. 64-year-old Terry Hopkins was charged with that as well, minus the false informing. In February of 2020, Terry Hopkins died at the age of 66 in jail awaiting trial. I do not know his cause of death. I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, He was a police officer for 33 years in Indiana, and now all of a sudden he was in jail in Indiana and then possibly facing a lengthy prison sentence in Indiana. So I can't imagine jail would be easy on him and prison definitely wouldn't be easy on him. There's probably guys in there that he put in there. Uh, And I find it strange that there's no articles uh, mentioning his cause of death. I searched quite a while looking for, like, did Terry die of a heart attack? Did he die of a stroke? And I just couldn't find anything. So I don't know. I don't know his I don't know his cause of death. Katrina was found not guilty for murder though when she went to trial, but guilty for conspiracy to commit murder and failure to report a corpse. The false informing charge that was that was just dropped. They were like, well, forget about this. We got bigger fish to fry here. In 2022, she was sentenced to 34 years in prison. So how do police believe David Fouts ingested those poisonous mushrooms? Clearly he ingested them. Clearly they were very toxic. I mean, Katrina Fouts, she was found guilty for conspiracy to commit murder. So they're saying she had something to do with this or she conspired to do this. So what did they think happened? Coroner John Chaflin investigated this case and recently he did an interview with 60 Minutes Australia regarding an ongoing recent investigation involving a mushroom poisoning in Australia, completely unrelated to the one that I've been talking about this whole time, but there's one that's just happened in Australia. It's all unfolding right now. So I don't know if you have heard about that case because it's all, it's like literally happening right now, Um, but it involves a toxic mushroom poisoning and that's all I can really say as the investigation is still ongoing Um, but you can find stuff about that online so I was looking at this case because I was like what's going on with that 
and I came across John Chaflin on the 60 Minutes Australia. So John Chaflin, he's on 60 Minutes Australia and he's talking about David Fouts poisoning. And although I don't have details about what came out in court, like what the what uh, Katrina's defense was arguing, I, I don't know. I feel like he paints a picture of what the prosecution said though. And John says that Terry Hopkins was Katrina's boyfriend and that the two conspired together to commit this crime. He also said that it was never determined how David Fouts ingested the mushrooms, but obviously he did. And perhaps this is why Katrina Fouts was found not guilty for murder, but guilty for conspiracy to commit murder. John explains what they think happened, and investigators believe David Fouts was fed a pizza at the country house with the toxic mushrooms on it. And David, he wouldn't even have known that these mushrooms would kill him. He just thought it was regular mushrooms on a pizza. And he goes on to say they think this because at the country house, they did find a pizza box. That's all he kind of says. Here's my theory, okay? This would make sense because if David worked until 7 p.m. the night of the 21st, a.k.a the last known day he was alive, then after work, he would have to eat dinner. And maybe Katrina lured him to the country house to eat some pizza. Looking back at the cell phone locations of Terry and Katrina from this evening, that makes sense. Terry and Katrina were at the country house by 6.48 p.m., roughly 15 minutes before David finishes work that night. This is the night Katrina says her and Terry fell asleep there and she didn't get back to the Pendleton home until after 3 a.m. where she never saw David and assumed he was asleep in his bed. This was also the same night that Terry's location information was manually turned off on his cell phone between 1.40 a.m. and 2.59 a.m., which is now technically the morning of the 22nd. Then around 3.17 a.m., Katrina turns off her GPS location on her phone. And between 3 a.m. and 3.19 a.m., Katrina and Terry call each other four times. Uh, could this be the night David ate that pizza? Katrina and Terry's full plan or whatever happened that night, it remains a mystery. Like all the details, all the little details, that remains a mystery to me. But what we do know is that David Fouts was murdered with to toxic mushrooms. And Katrina and Terry have some very weird cell phone activity from the 21st to the 23rd, not to mention the screenshots with the information about poisonous mushrooms found on Katrina's cell phone. There's so much more to this case that I think we need to know. I think there's a lot missing here. I would like to hear more about Katrina's allegations of domestic abuse, I would like to know if those are true or false. I would like to know more about her relationship with her husband. Did she feel like she was in danger? Was he physically and emotionally abusive to her like she claimed? Because it just, I feel like Katrina is just not the cold-blooded killer we talk about on this podcast every week. There's, it's just, there's something missing here and I don't know what it is and I would like to know more information about many things regarding this case, particularly in the motive side of things. I feel like there was no solid 
motive. I I mean, in that 60 Minutes Australia, the coroner, John Ch- Chaflin, he does say that um, they believed that her, that Katrina and Terry did have a relationship and that they were conspiring to get rid of David. But it doesn't seem like Katrina is a cold-blooded killer. I'm just not getting that. Did she feel her life was at risk? Did she feel like she couldn't leave her husband for some reason? Was there something more going on that motivated this? This case, this is a reminder of how deadly mushrooms can be. They they look so innocent, but they can be so dangerous. People have unintentionally picked poisonous mushrooms, ate them themselves, and had terrible, terrible consequences from it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Into the Wild. That's a true story. That guy died from poisonous mushrooms. He was living out in the bush. He went into the wild. He got really hungry. He was foraging for food. He didn't know what he was doing. And in the end, that's what got him. Not a grizzly bear, not the Alaskan wild, but a mushroom. A tiny little unsuspecting mushroom that he had foraged, didn't know how dangerous it was, and that's what killed him. So just don't fuck around with mushrooms in the wild. Just if you don't know what you're doing, don't touch them. That wraps up this week's case. Please remember to follow and rate Hell No on whatever platform you are listening on. And I would love to see you over on the Hell No TikTok and or Instagram at Hell No underscore a true crime podcast. Also, I am putting together the spooky stories episode for Halloween, which is next month. And if you have them, If you wrote one this year, if it's spooky, if it's fiction, if it's fact, if it's long, if it's whatever, I just, I'm just looking for anything paranormal, anything scary. I just finished writing my entry, (laughs) entry to my own podcast. I just finished writing a short, scary fiction story today. I wrote it in two days. Um, I think it's pretty good. I'm going to read it, uh, but I would love to read your stories as well. So throughout your day, if you're having some creepy thoughts or, you know, like, I don't know, try to work it into a story, build a story off that. Maybe you see a shadow in your house and you're like, oh, I thought that was a ghost. Build on that. Build on that Give me a beginning, middle, and end. Give me characters. It can be short. It can be a page long. It can be half a page long. It can be even a true story. Maybe you even met a ghost in real life. I don't know. I'd love to hear it. I would love to hear it. So if you have any story that may fit this category, you have to have written it though, okay? You have to have written it. You can include your name, But what I really want to know is if you want to be named or if you want to remain anonymous. That is very important. If you want me to give you credit or if you just want to say an anonymous listener sent in this story that they wrote. You have to have written it, guys. Don't send me something you didn't write, okay? That is not 
That is not okay. So that is it for me. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.